This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to talk all about small business. First, we'll hear from Margaret Anadu, head of our Urban Investment Group, about our own recent efforts to commit $250 million in capital for emergency loans to small businesses, as well as $25 million in direct grants to community development financial institutions and other mission-driven lenders. Then we'll hear directly from three small business entrepreneurs, all graduates of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, on how COVID-19 and the resulting economic impact has affected their own businesses and their lives. But first, Margaret, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So give us the big picture first. What's been the impact so far of the epidemic on small businesses here in the United States? Sure. I think, you know, I don't think this will surprise anyone. It has been significant. You know, we were actually able to survey, you know, a huge amount of our 10,000 small businesses scholars, and we got to over 1,500 of them. And the feedback was clear. 96% of them had been impacted. Over half of them felt if the situation did not change, they wouldn't be open in three months. And then two-thirds of them were having a lot of uncertainty, even figuring out how to navigate what was available from the federal government. And so if you think about why why that level of distress, why that level of impact. Small businesses are, um, especially our kind of mainstream, Main Street neighborhood businesses, they rely on customers and that cash flow and being open every day. And so when you're closed, you're not generating revenue. Uh, two, you're having issues with your employees who, who simply cannot be at work given all the forced closures. And so if you take those issues on top of just the timing of it, this is not something that we were talking about a few months ago. This is not something that small business owners were prepared for. And so just the onset of it and having to make some of the most difficult decisions a small business owner will ever have to make, whether they're going to be open, whether they're going to have to you know, lay off a significant amount of their workforce, those are, those are decisions that are difficult in the best of times, even with preparation. And so having to figure it out you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, as you can imagine, is is really, really, really difficult. And then just on top of that, of course, this is a health crisis. So these same small business owners are dealing with, you know, health issues in their own families, the health issues of their employees. And so when you put all that together on these businesses, it's causing it's causing a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration, and and it's 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 widespread. So Congress passed and the president signed into law a big federal stimulus package. What's been the takeaway from that so far in terms of small business? So the federal stimulus bill that was just passed had a pretty key provision for small businesses. That's the Paycheck Protection Program that we're all hearing about in the press. Congress appropriated $349 billion to this program and had two primary goals. One, to get this desperately needed cash assistance to these businesses to cover their operating expenses. But two, do it in a way that actually incentivizes them to maintain their employees and keep them on the payroll. Or if they've already had to make that heartbreaking decision to lay employees off, it actually gives them the ability to rehire them. So the loan itself is meant to be streamlined. It is not a full business underwriting and simply sizes a loan based on 2.5 times average monthly payroll. Then once the loan is funded, Borrowers who use the funds to maintain their employees and cover other eligible operating expenses like rent or utilities benefit from a significant portion or sometimes all of the loan being forgiven. So it's incredibly attractive from that standpoint because it's getting businesses the cash that they need fast 
And if they use it to keep their employees, they don't need to pay it back. So I think to your point about the takeaways, you know, one, it's significant, right? It's certainly going to help a lot of businesses and individuals um, because, you know, businesses are hyper-focused on cash flow. And this is one answer. I think the key questions out there are around the infrastructure. So how and where businesses actually get the money. So I mentioned earlier the size of $349 billion. The program is currently structured to use an existing lending program under the Small Business Administration called 7A. So it's just typically much smaller. So just taking 2019 as an example, $20 billion was lent over the entire year. And for the Paycheck Protection Program, the current goal is to get $350 billion out the door in less than three months. So as you can imagine, that's causing a lot of anxiety for borrowers who have been told it's first come, first served. And for lenders on the other side who are trying to move at you know, 50x their typical pace on a lending program where the rules you know, are still evolving by the day. And so to go back to the takeaways, it's a valuable solution, but you know, $349 billion won't be enough and the implementation and access will be key. Your team moved pretty quickly in New York and Chicago to stand up with the mayors of those cities, loan programs for small businesses in Chicago and New York. You also announced this past week a big program. Explain what those programs are and how it works since Goldman isn't traditionally been a small business lender itself. Sure. You know, we've actually since doubled that commitment from $250 million to $500 million. So our goal across the board has been to get capital to small businesses and do it as fast as possible. So our $15 million in New York City and $10 million in Chicago are both great examples. We work directly with city leadership in both cases to set up facilities that we could deploy capital fast. We partnered with community-driven lenders to design very simple loan products that would be straightforward for borrowers and would provide attractive loan terms like you know, upfront deferment, starting at 0% interest, you know, just given the level of distress these businesses are already facing. And in both cases, those facilities had thousands of applicants within days. So we know that there's enormous demand. And then, of course, another key goal, other than just the speed, is, of course, getting these businesses the best capital available. And so I mentioned earlier the Paycheck Protection Program and its attractive features, you know, but unfortunately kind of you know, complicated delivery. So the largest eligible lenders under that program are the large commercial banks. And for the 44% of small businesses who do not have a small business lending relationship with a bank, they face an uphill battle in securing this really important loan product that they are, you know, for all reasons, eligible for. It's just about how you get it. And that 44% figure that's just small businesses without a lending relationship. That doesn't even count all of the, the independent contractors and self-employed folks who are also eligible for these paycheck protection loans. And so that's what we're focused on with our $500 million commitment to fund community development, financial institutions, and other mission-driven lenders to make these loans. We wanted to make sure that the $349 billion was going to get to the widest swath of businesses. And that's those without a bank relationship, like I mentioned those in underserved communities, rural areas, um, you know, businesses run by folks who are, who are disadvantaged in the normal force without the additional pandemic-related concerns. So in getting at that, we focus on CDFIs because they have a proven record, in some cases 20, 30, 40 years old, of working in communities and getting to the smallest of businesses, minority and women-owned businesses. So getting capital from Goldman Sachs to those CDFIs just ensures that they have the liquidity to serve those businesses. And the other piece we've been focused on is making sure that those same community lenders have the operational support needed to get those loans out and do it in a responsible and safe way. So we also committed $25 million of philanthropy 
to bolster their infrastructure so they can answer this important call. So beyond what you've described in terms of the small business lending programs, how else can cities and communities help their small businesses right now? On the local level, for starters, they can increase awareness of what options are available to small businesses. Now, I mentioned earlier that two-thirds of the businesses we surveyed don't know how to access the relief efforts that are out there. And so navigating you know, the emergency and loan options can be incredibly complex, especially given the level of urgency that's involved. And so as businesses and individuals turn to their cities for help, being able to provide clear information on what's available in layman's terms is, is so incredibly valuable. These businesses are facing incredible challenges and the level of confusion and not knowing where to turn only makes those matters much worse. So obviously we're all from this podcast to everything we do, we're all learning to do our day jobs very differently. What was it like trying to set up these loan facilities and work out partnerships with cities in, in a remote fashion and during a time of crisis? You know, we're all moving so urgently. You know, there's nothing like a crisis like this to really see people's best efforts and, and see their passion come out. And when you're working with that level of urgency, there have been times where I didn't even, you know, stop to notice, you know, I'm not sitting in a room with folks to work these issues out and move things forward like I typically would. And, you know, the other thing that's just been a big takeaway for me working across all of these loan facilities in different cities, it's just that real sense of shared purpose. You know, there's no one who doesn't frequent a small business or, who doesn't know a small business owner personally, or you know, who wasn't concerned about all the health issues that are surrounding us. And you know, for a lot of folks that we're working with on these transactions, it's, it's touching people's direct family. And so having that opportunity to work on something with people, whether it's the folks at the city or you know, the, the folks at our community lender partners, or actually you know, even the senior leadership within our own firm, you know, it's so humbling. You know, but I think at the same time, it just speaks to the depth of the crisis we're in, because I don't think you could find a single person who would say that they were you know, completely untouched. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you're very busy. Thank you for having me. For those of you who'd like more information on this topic and Goldman Sachs efforts, you can check out our website, gs.com slash small business. I mean, there's plenty of information there and additional resources as well. Now over to the next portion of the episode with three small business owners to hear about how the pandemic has affected their lives and their businesses. Our entrepreneurs today are Aaron Andrews of Indie Chocolate, a Seattle-based chocolate factory, Ellen McNulty-Brown of Low Tough Leather, a Rhode Island-based leather maker, and Matt Jaswiak of Rethink Food, a New York City-based nonprofit. Aaron, Ellen, and Matt all graduated from Goldman Sachs' 10,000 Small Business Program, which helps entrepreneurs create jobs and economic opportunity by providing greater access to education, capital, and business support services. To date, more than 9,100 business owners have graduated from the program across all 50 states. Welcome to the program, Aaron, Ellen, and Matt, and thanks for making time despite everything that's going on in your businesses today. Thank you. So let's start with a quick overview on all your businesses. Aaron, you run Indie Chocolate, a chocolate factory in Seattle. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, it was started almost 10 years ago. It'll be in October, 10 years old, when I started making lotion and lip balms in my kitchen for my daughter's sensitive skin. Uh, that thankfully people wanted to buy. I was already a chocolate maker, but I started the company based on the cocoa butter-based body care because it had lower barriers to entry, higher margins, and uh, it allowed us to buy the equipment and and start making the chocolate that we're now famous for. The reason I started it with uh, body care um, was because of the better economic drivers for that, but it also is the reason why I like to say it's the most backwards chocolate company of all time 
because we didn't even start with chocolate. But Indy is named after my daughter, Indy. And as part of the Goldman Sachs growth plan uh, that I had from the 10,000 small business program was the build out of our chocolate factory and cafe in Seattle's iconic Pike Place Market, where we not only have our factory and cafe, but we also have what we now ironically call the gathering space, uh, where we have classes and events regularly held, except for this time during COVID-19 and social distancing. But it's all located right in the heart of Seattle in the iconic Pike Place Market, where the fish are thrown and the tourists generally throng. And that is our only location um, outside of our website sales. And we have had 12 employees, and we're now struggling to keep three employees because the impact has been so strong for the business. All right. Thank you, Erin. Ellen, tell us a little bit about Low Tough Leather. Great. Uh, Low Tough is a family-owned business that was founded in 2012 by the Lotus and our designer and creative director, Lindy McDonough. We have a team of 21 here in Providence where we handmake some of the most exquisite leather bags that I think you can find anywhere in the world. I ended up joining the team in 2015. Uh, They brought me on to help grow and scale the business. And we were lucky enough to be a part of cohort number one for 10,000 small businesses out of CCRI in Providence, Rhode Island. Great. And Matt, a little bit about Rethink Food. Yeah. So Rethink was started in 2017. Uh, I'm a chef by trade. I worked at restaurants like 11 Madison Park in Noma. And towards the end of my career, realized that there was an excessive amount of food um, that was being thrown away. So I worked with partners uh, such as the corporate cafeteria, Goldman Sachs, the Conrad Hilton to collect this excess food and provide free catering services to nonprofits, community centers all over Brooklyn. Post COVID-19, we realized that centralized food production was probably not the wisest idea during this time and, and risk of infection. So we decided to launch a program which we radically pivoted towards where we supply capital to small restaurants in order to keep their staff employed, where they create single serving meals and distribute them through vehicles like Meals on Wheels and our own distribution networks. Great. So, Aaron, you already mentioned a little bit of the impact of uh, COVID-19 on your business. Explain a little bit. Obviously, the the retail uh, space is, is probably shut down, but how is e-commerce holding up in this environment and, and how are you thinking about the business so far? Well, we are thankfully able to continue to have our doors open because making something that makes people happy is essential even in a crisis. But for now, it's only takeaway, curbside pickup and delivery. Because we are located in Seattle's iconic Pike Place Market, uh, we felt the effects of COVID-19 pretty much immediately. And the impacts have only gotten worse and we've seen that um, continue. The cruise ship industry is really a big part of our revenues for not only Indy Chaka, but the other uh, over 500 businesses in Pike Place Market. The first cruise ship was supposed to be coming into port on Wednesday. Uh, That will not be happening now, obviously. So we look at this impact as not just what we've already had the impact with, but for us, we are now supposed to be heading into our busy season with the cruise ship industry and summer seasons coming on board. But that's really thrown into peril. So what we've done is we have done a lot of the marketing towards online sales. We've also created an online menu for order ahead so people can take up and do take out and do curbside pickup. And we were working with new delivery companies, as well as we've created a care package that can be both bought, <clears throat> gifted, and donated. And uh, those are the areas that we're going to really be pivoting our business with 
as part of our chocolate recovery program. Uh, the Just purchase of 100 yeah. of those care packages will keep one employee employed for one month at Indie Chocolate. So Matt, obviously a lot of restaurants are closed and offices, office cafeterias are scaled back. How have you been trying to adapt your business model? So we've kind of realized that, you know, we really have to change drastically. And, and our concern now was initially, uh, was is now the cost of acquisition. Obviously, the majority of our food was donated, but as major farms, small farms start going under and the supply chain starts to break down in the food sector, we need to be dynamic and able to kind of provide solutions. So right now we're working towards basically providing grants to restaurants so that they can actually purchase food which is going to be extremely important because if you can imagine every farm not having restaurants to sell food to has pretty dire consequences. Ellen, what's uh, been the impact on production and manufacturing in Rhode Island and how are you making sure that your workforce is safe on the job? So if you talked to me two weeks ago, I would have still been speaking in terms of luxury leather briefcases, duffel bags, and handbags. But as of 72 hours ago, we received our establishment registration with the FDA, and we now have cleared the way for our team to manufacture face shields and to assist in the response to this public health crisis. So we did make the determination that we wanted to focus our efforts on healthcare workers, uh, people within our own community who were in dire need of quality protective equipment, and the healthcare industry in Rhode Island is such an important piece of our local economy. Um, one hospital system is about 70% of all healthcare in Rhode Island. And if we could even be a small piece of the solution, then we were looking to, to assist. And Honestly, we found the response both locally and regionally um, to be very positive and somewhat eye-opening because the fact that Lotuff, a, a leather goods company that had no prior experience in healthcare or medical devices, would be able to get traction as quickly as we have, it, it's incredibly encouraging, but it also just emphasizes how dire the need is and that anything that we can do to help should go a long way. Well, so we did a survey a couple weeks back now that said that 51% of small business owners said they would not be able to stay in business beyond three months if these conditions persist. I'd like to take you one at a time, but is that how you're feeling about your own business and where's the economic pain hitting the most? Let's start with you, Alan. So a day or two um, into it really getting very bad, I was talking to a friend and the first thing I said was, I don't know how we're going to cover payroll. We invested over five years in building from a team of three back in 2015 to a team of 21 now, and they are highly skilled uh, artisans. And we've invested a ton in training and development. So for us, when the sales just stopped, you know, it, it, this was entirely unlike anything that I've ever seen before, I think just due to the volatility and the uncertainty of it all. Uh, you know, for us, March 6th hit and the cash register, register just stopped ringing. 
So for, for us, and at least in the last week, it was really a scramble for how we could create meaningful work, but just for a product that the market really needed right now more than luxury leather bags um, and handbags. And I would say, we're, you know, we're not deviating or stopping our growth in leather goods, but we are very focused on in the near 90 days, 120 days, how we can actually take what we believe will be extra bandwidth and apply it towards helping to meet the demands of this public health crisis. Aaron, obviously you've got valuable commercial real estate and you mentioned you've had to scale back your staff. How do you feel about the forward of the business right now? I think if you talk to any small business owner, we all have the same pain point and that's cash flow, full stop. Uh, I was recently on a conference call in which the speaker was talking to a group of small businesses and they kept saying, you are not alone, we're in this together. And they kept saying the word alone and alone and alone over and over again. And the thing that I realized is that really what we need are not loans. What we need is access to cash, access quickly, and preferably grants because those are what really allow us to do what we need to do for our business immediately. Um, and those, I think, are really going to address the pain points of, of the small business. What we need also right now is sales directly to our business. I would encourage everyone to do things like pay for shipping on packages and pay directly from the small maker, because that is what keeps the money in the business to allow them to recover and move quickly and freeze up that cash flow for the business. Matt, obviously, big challenges all the way around. What's been the biggest challenge in, in continuing to access and distribute food? All right, the biggest challenge for Rethink has definitely been uh, trying to get the foundations to, you know, realize the severity of the issue. There's a significant a lack of trust in the philanthropy community that has kind of been a major problem for a really long time, and has actually, in a lot of situations, uh, very well documented, perpetuated a circle of poverty. And this is becoming more true more than ever. Soup kitchens are closing and social unrest is the next step. We really need to take drastic action. And there's not time for a six-month, eight-month granting process. It's, we don't have time till next grant cycle. We need to get cash into the hands of business owners now. And there just needs to be an, a higher level of, of trust and dependency on each other. And I really believe that philanthropy, like always, is kind of leaned on to solve social problems and, and, and create a social net, uh, like a social safety net. But we're also required to jump through some pretty ridiculous hoops. And also executive directors have a thing called negative grants, where you actually have to spend more money to get the grant than you and, and to return the information back to the foundation than the grant is. And this just has to stop. And it has to stop with this at this time. So I'm optimistic, actually, that a lot of these things that we're battling will lead to more systemic change in the philanthropy community, because it's ultimately been pretty problematic and led to some pretty serious problems. Okay. Economics aside, what have been the hardest personal challenges you're facing at this time as a business owner? Uh, Aaron, I'll start with you. Well, Indie Chocolate is a community-based business, and it's all about the people. The Pike Place Market community includes a food bank, low-cost medical clinic, low income and senior housing, a preschool and senior center, as well as a community center. I miss seeing our regulars, many of whom fall into high risk class, 
and I miss seeing them on a daily basis. Indie Chocolate also works with farmers around the world for the beans we use to make our chocolate in Pike Place Market. Lower chocolate sales and cash flow can impact when I'm buying beans and how much I'm buying at a time. I've had sourcing trips to both Hawaii and the Solomon Islands already canceled because of COVID-19. And I personally miss seeing the folks that make Indie Chocolate a business based on community. I want to bring back all of my team back to work, but I also want to open the doors fully so people can gather again and come to classes and events and all the other things that we do in Indie Chocolate. So I, I really look forward to a time when we can really be about people and about community in a non-social distancing working environment. Ellen, how about you? What are some of the personal challenges you've been facing? I think I'd have to say it's the uncertainty and the volatility of the market was probably the, the largest challenge over the last few weeks. And then when we did actually observe uh, industry leaders in France and Italy repurpose their uh, manufacturing operations to move from changing from bags to either face masks or sanitizer um, in an effort to you know to, to create meaningful work to for their employees. We only had about a week, a week and a half to figure out how how would we do it. So. The the biggest challenge, honestly, has been not just the volatility, but figuring out how we would enter an entirely new business and get up and running in really only about, I mean, we, we, we've done it in under 10 days. And to me, that it's the craziest thing I've ever had to do in 25 years of working. Um, and medical devices, while I, I really appreciate what we're doing, is good and um, essential in the middle of this public health crisis. I wouldn't have ever picked this industry as something I would love to do. <laughs> it's really, really tedious and hard. I can only imagine. Uh, Matt, how about you? I think that the you know the biggest challenges is that you know personal challenges that like you know you're, everybody's pretty scared. Everybody's pretty shooken up down to, you know, the people who drive the trucks, the people who cook the food and, and all the different aspects and also our partners and also my family and, and my fiance, you know, people are, people are scared and, and having to kind of wear that mask of it's going to be all right. This is the way forward. Let's do this. We, we got it is, is hard and you have to kind of, you know, hold a lot back. So that's definitely been the most non-economic challenging part for me. But luckily, our chair uh, and, and actually somebody at the firm, Marshall Smith and Julian Baker, have been really instrumental in you know just taking time to chat with me and kind of chat through those things. So it's been it's been great to get close to them, but at the same time, it's uh, definitely definitely frightening. So uh, late last week uh, and over the weekend, the, the Congress approved a big stimulus package. I know you're not all legislative specialists, but what are the most helpful provisions you've seen included in that? And were there things you'd like to see added? Let's go, uh, Matt, Ellen, then Aaron. Sure. I, you know, I really would have said, like, you know, really like to see something for small business owners, especially in the food space. I don't think that this has ever been properly recognized, but the, the, the next step below a restaurant or food provider is basically workforce development. These are entry levels into our economy. These are the first jobs people can get without a skill set, without even language skills. They can get a job washing dishes, minimum wage, two meals a day. And it's a great starting point. It's how I started. I started washing dishes in Kansas when I was when I was, you know, 18 years old. When these jobs are gone, there's no second rung. 
There's no other place. It's directly into poverty. And we're not going to have the time, the space like we did. And I know there's some issues with the financial crisis. It's not bankers losing their jobs. It's, it's working full. And it's going to be, lead to a huge problem. So what needs to happen is that these restaurants, these employers should have just, grants is exactly the word. It's not, it's not a loan. It should be, here's 75,000 bucks, keep your staff employed, you know, <clears throat> get some work done, make meals for community centers. They need them. Senior citizens need meals, make them for that. That's exactly what should have happened. We should have utilized our infrastructure that we already had and the workforce that we already had to solve another problem and been a little more organized about it. So that's what Rethink's trying to do is we're trying to gain access to capital so we can give capital to restaurants, have them create emergency meals and get them out to the folks who need them. Ellen? So the truth is we're really only just getting our heads around this bill um, between moving from leather goods to medical devices in a week. (laughs) There's a lot for us to pretty much take in and figure out how we're moving forward on a day-to-day basis. What we know right now, it does seem like the initially the small business support is good and that there may be an ability um, based on what we're seeing to ensure that the way we approach the loan uh, would afford us loan forgiveness at the end of the year if we're able to retain our workforce and um, and move forward. So from from our perspective, that's a positive because instead of simply taking on debt to get through this, someone did at least have the foresight to to attempt to think about how it would be less burdensome. So you know, having the loan forgiven would be a huge uh, benefit uh, for us in particular. And beyond that, I mean, we were also encouraged to see that there's support in there for public transportation, child care. These are all of the things that will just help keep our team together. And Aaron? The number one most helpful provision for small businesses is getting access to cash. This is what small businesses need right now. And I mean, right now. And any way that this access to cash can be expedited is really helpful. I would like to see the grants given instead of the forgiveness of loans that's included in this program. Uh, To be an entrepreneur means that you're willing to take certain risks. The Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program has helped entrepreneurs take smarter risks than actions for their business. We are pivoting as small businesses during COVID-19, and having access to quick cash and grants makes the pivoting and survival much easier and effective. Okay, so uh, taking it one day at a time, what's one goal, big or small, that you have for your business uh, for the week ahead? Aaron? My goal this week is actually to really focus on our care packages because our care packages are part of our chocolate recovery program in that 100 care packages keeps one employee employed for a month. Uh, So it's a really easy online sale or uh, we have the ability to deliver in Seattle as well. And so our focus is really doing what's going to keep both our doors open and our employees employed. And hopefully we'll sell enough of them to bring back the rest of our team, uh, because that is who I miss and really uh, so much of what I'm working for right now. Ellen, how about you? For us, it is really just going to be about getting our team back to work. It's We are about our people. And 
you know, everybody always talks about, you know, small businesses being the backbone of the economy. And it's true. And Matt, how about this week? What's your biggest goal? Our biggest goal this week is to prove the model. So we're opening up a couple of variations of, of, of the restaurant response program, one at 11 Madison Park. And then we're actually trying to do one in Seattle with here. So we can make a huge dent in the emergency food need for less than what the city of New York is contracting uh, people out to make meals, which is around $6 a meal. If we can get it down to five, we will have proven that the model works. $5 meals, five employees, 50,000 bucks goes a really long way. So if we're able to do this and execute this, then we're, our hope is is that our what we really want is for this to become a federal program where restaurants all over the country can rehire their employees and meet the demand of what is ultimately going to be a pretty major recession. Well, obviously, a lot of us are stuck at home or working from home. What can we be doing to support small businesses in our local communities? Start with Ellen. Well, I think you said it best. It's all about the local community. So, you know, let's buy local, you know, keep our investments local. If you need a book, skip Amazon and go to your local bookstore. And, you know, for us in particular, Two weeks ago, you know, people would come and invest, you know, seven hundred to up to twelve thousand dollars for a bag. And rationally, we we fully understand that that's not even an expectation on our part today. So, for a business like Lotus, if you have our bags, think about writing a review. If you don't follow us on social media, then Start following us on social media. And simple things like that go a long way. And Matt? Um, Echoing that, I would say that, you know, one, support your local business, but rethink. uh, I think that it's time for philanthropists who have time. And, if you know, if it's a hundred bucks, if it's five bucks, it doesn't matter. But take the time to look into a couple organizations um, and donate your money. If you have capital, if you have a little little cash on hand. It's more more important more important than ever to donate cash. So but take the time. Don't don't give it to your your uh some big foundation and say, hey, you figure out what to do with it. It'll be six months before it hits anybody on the street. So take the time, donate to your local charities, help your local community, and, and that we feel like that would be most beneficial. Aaron, what can we do to help a small business like yours? Look for ways to help people. Uh, so look for ways that you can directly put your dollars into the economy of small business by directly, not through third parties, pay for shipping. Uh, Shipping is uh, a cost that small businesses have. And by paying for the shipping, you're keeping more of the bottom line and more of the cash that's needed for the business in the business itself. Buy local, buy direct, support them on social media as well. And just Keep on keeping on and, and look out for your neighbors as well and see how that they can um, use assistance when, when you can give that. All right. Well, some very consistent themes there. Obviously, an extremely challenging time for all of us, but especially for those of you in small business. Is there anything you've seen as a small business owner that's left you feeling optimistic? Erin, we'll start with you. Yes. The thing that I find really the most optimistic and heartwarming right now is seeing community come together. And we've seen this in our local community, right, in Pike Place Market, as far as local businesses coming together to create delivery services and also working with community-based organizations to deliver our care package so that they get a part of the proceeds in the delivery as well. And we've been working with local farmers so that we can sell their 
flowers for them uh, in the market. The, the farmer that we're working with has been selling flowers in the market for 28 years and is now not able to sell because of the conditions in Seattle and, and set, shutting down many of the businesses. But because we're a food-based operation, we can have people buy both flowers and talk together. So having those communities come together um, and supporting one another is really encouraging. And I think it's really encouraging for small businesses as well. I've really okay. appreciated the fact that cream always rises to the top and we've had people just come out and help. And I really am so appreciative of that, that our customers have bought online. That makes a really big help for us to keep our doors open. And I'm extremely thankful for that. It is really appreciated and it really does make a difference. All right, Matt, any signs of hope? Yeah, you know, honestly, a lot. I, I right, you know, definitely community. I, I actually think that there's a huge opportunity ultimately to to streamline uh, emergency food services. You know, if we can get excess food that was normally thrown into the trash directly to restaurants and have some of them, you know, produce catered meals for for nonprofits, it one could be an extra revenue source for restaurants, which I know. Definitely in New York City is, is, is more than needed. The quality of the food could go up and we have a real chance to change things for the better. So that's what keeps us going at Rethink. That's what keeps us optimistic is that I think when the dust settles, we'll actually be, it'll be really challenging, but we're going to be left with a more efficient uh, food system, which had a lot of problems going into this thing. And Ellen, I'll close with you. Where are you seeing some hopeful signs? You know, I have to echo everything that was said by Aaron and Matt. Um, And at the end of the day, it's, you know, how do we define our community, I guess? For us, it's been um, the locals, you know, people who are here and have wrapped around us, everybody from our landlord, who has been extremely helpful in terms of giving us a breather on rent. Our, our governor has worked really hard to keep as many businesses open as possible. The customers who have been with us for years who, you know, can afford to buy, they're purchasing with us now. And that support is huge. And honestly, <laughs> the, the move we've had to make in the last week to try and enter an entirely new business and deal with FDA registrations and everything else. I can't even tell you how many people have helped. So this just network that we've been fortunate, myself, Pelota, uh, Lindy, we've built this network of people over the years. And now that we had to figure out how can we repurpose ourselves to keep our people employed by working on face shields, Everybody has jumped in to make a call to a hospital. Really, it is honestly that how many people have just jumped in to help and not the least of which truly has been Goldman Sachs, where they've been a tremendous resource for us, where we said we don't know who to talk to. How do we actually get set up with our FDA registration? Where do we go to get going and make certain that if we're operating, we're operating in a way that is going to be safe and sustainable as we head into the coming weeks with COVID? And uh, all I can say is these people have been incredibly helpful to us. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ellen and Matt. Thank you, all of us, for joining us today. And best of luck as you continue to navigate what's a very challenging environment. 
That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. But more importantly, do what you can to support these small businesses today. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on markets and what's driving the current volatility. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in two segments on March 30th and April 3rd, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.